This is Ivarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by PhotoBiz Exposed, an interview podcast which takes the mystery out of the business of photography. Learn from some of the industry's best as Andrew Helmich discovers how people make their passion their life's work. Find out more by visiting photobizx.com forward slash TCF. Today we present the second half of my conversation with Colin Westerbeck. If you've not had the opportunity to listen to part one, please pause the audio and listen to the previous episode. I want you to get the most from our conversation with Colin, which is just amazing. This interview came about as part of a special project, which is a collaboration between Acuity Press, Photo District News Magazine, and Colin. Along with the release of a new edition of Bystander, A History of Street Photography, Colin will be curating photography of contemporary street photography in another book published by Acuity. Street Photography 2015 is a contest in which photographers from all over the world will submit their images for consideration in a collection of street photography. Colin will serve as the judge for the finalist and will help develop what will prove to be an amazing collection of modern street photography. Beginning on May 20th, you'll have the opportunity to enter your best images for this contest and for possible inclusion in the book. Entries can be submitted through July 24th. In a week, the website with all the details should be up and live. You'll be able to find out more by visiting streetphotography2015.com. Now let's continue our conversation with Colin Westerbeck. Have you found that the advent of digital and the whole te technological advancements mm -hmm. that have happened in photography, have you seen anything that has uh, impacted street photography as a result of those transformations and evolutions? Well, one of the things, and this is something that Joel realized, uh, we're, as you're aware, we're doing this new edition of Bystandard's going to have a new fifth section with a new text by me and a new conversation between me and Joel and a bunch of new street photography, photography, street photography made since 2001. And one of the things that Joel has come to realize as he himself has, has been scanning the internet looking for photographers, people doing street photography, really trying to get a full sense of what's going on out there and then been getting to know a lot of other photographers, he having started with the Leica back in the 60s in the film era, when he got his first digital Leica, he always, when he would go out and shoot, would be careful to save everything before he edited. What he's discovered is that many younger photographers go out and spend a day shooting and then pick the pictures when they get home, back to the studio or whatever, that they think are significant and erase the rest. And he's been going around making a real mission out of saying to younger photographers, don't do that. Because some of the most important pictures I've taken, it was only a year later that something I took made me realize there was a picture I'd done a year ago that I hadn't paid any attention to that was important. And I hadn't been able to see its importance yet. 
And the ability to go back and look at those contact sheets again is absolutely crucial. There is a certain back and forth in time that happens to any photographer. Yeah. And if, if you take advantage of the compactness, the evanescence of digital storage of photographs by just flushing stuff out of the camera and not you know, setting up a storage system that allows you to keep those files and keep them at a fairly decent density so that you can go back to pictures and still use them because it took you six months or a year, maybe several years, to think, oh, wait a minute, I've been on pictures like this before. I didn't see the significance of that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I don't know if that, that's something that's sort of unique to the, to the practice of street photography, but it's this idea that somehow unconsciously you can make a photograph that is very effective, but at the moment that you first see it, you don't recognize it. And then later on, as you further develop your, your awareness of what a good photograph is, as you expand your vocabulary, you revisit those images mm -hmm. and you realize what you achieved, probably unconsciously mm -hmm. to some extent, mm -hmm. but makes that photograph mm -hmm. extraordinary. Do you think that that's something that's unique to, to street photography? No, I don't think it's unique to street photography because I know from, uh, I mentioned Irving Penn before, I know from having had many conversations with Irving that when he would shoot maybe a dozen different, you know, you know, Irving had a period when he would literally drive people into a corner. He would take two f mm -hmm. right. theatrical flats and push them together so that people had to figure out how to respond to the space. And he would shoot a dozen portraits like that. And sometimes it was only later that one of them stood out from the one he'd selected at the time that he would go back to. So it's, it's a process that's inherent in photography and photography's ability, if you're shooting landscapes, if you're shooting portraits in a studio, no matter where you're shooting, to make multiple exposures and then need to hang on to that because the one you choose at that moment, may, there may be one other that you ignored or didn't even think was, was worth saving, but you thought, oh, well, I'll keep it too. It's, but in street photography, this is really crucial because to the extent that you're depending on the, the timing of your eye and you're trusting your instincts and not f you can't fully be conscious of and analyzing everything that's going on in that frame. This is, this is uniquely true of street photography, although it's also true of war photography and other situations where people mm -hmm. are photographing under different, not everyday circumstances. And so the ability to hang on to things and to trust that, that you may have had almost a subconscious response to something in that frame that made you take that picture. And then when the first time when you went and looked at it on the contact sheet or in the file in your digital camera or in your storage facility for digital pictures, you still didn't become conscious of what the trigger might have been or what, you know, what was unique, what was uh, original in that particular picture. You may have responded to the things that look like other pictures you'd taken before, and only later in going back do you realize there's something new going on there too yeah. that you can incorporate and play to and maybe make more central to your photography. So street photography is the most crucial example of that. And, and, but again, in also photojournalism in a larger sense. But because photojournalism is shot to be right now and be, get published and then you pass on and don't go back, Street photography, where photographers always have this kind of longevity because the basic conditions, the social milieu, the way people dress, you know, many things may change on the street. But what you're looking at is the long view of everyday yeah. life. 
And so the ability to save all of that and to be able to have a dialogue with yourself that moves back and forth in time is most crucial, perhaps, in this genre. Would it suffice it to say that the book Bystander was basically your, your self-education? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And it came out of being on the street with Joel. It came out of the conversations Joel and I had, which is why we ended the book with a conversation and why we're going to end the new book with a conversation. I just like the conversation I'm having with you. I mean, this is, you know, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm phrasing and indeed thinking of things like details in ways that I've never written down before, but may at some point. <laughs> no, I really, no, I mean, this, yeah. is, this, this is what stimulated me. Because when I started, unlike my uh, the doctoral degree I did, for instance, where it was reading and the formal structure of a classroom that educated me there, street photography... Like the street photographer himself, I had to pick up my knowledge of this genre as I went along because I had no background in it. I'd never studied photo history. As I said, I'd never had an art history course in my life. Um, <clears throat> and so, this, yeah, it came out of part of the, the, the unity of it as an experience was that like the photographs, whatever insights I was capable of having or might have been capable of having into street photography came out of spontaneous everyday experiences, just like the photographs. Joel and I going and looking at stuff and talking about it. We used to go out of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, you, know, you know, if he had an afternoon off and I wasn't teaching when we were first interested in this, we'd walk down to the Modern if it was a nice day. And we could just drop in. And, and, and John Jarkowski would say, oh, well, John Jarkowski would say, well, what do you want to look at today? Well, can we, can we have, let's have a box of Aceh. Could we look at some of uh, one of Winogrand's really early works? Whatever, you know, whatever. That's an e-ticket ride. Right. It wasn't, you know, the offices of the Department of Photography were then in a brownstone that the museum had bought with the idea of eventually building the museum tower, but they'd broken through the wall from the original museum, and the offices were in this rather cramped space. You know, it was very informal. And you, there were lots of opportunities for pretty spontaneous experiences of studying this stuff as well as of still of doing it in the street. Because, uh, yeah, it wasn't, you know, we called attention to it as an organized thing, but it wasn't organized for us. We were kind of figuring it out as we went along, both the photography and how to talk about it and then how to write about it and publish it in this as a history. How, how are the outlets for street photography changed over the last... 50, 50 years? Well, over the last 50, 60 years, well, they've changed most radically uh, over the last two decades because, for reasons that are complex, and we can get into this if you want, but because of the impact of the change, the, it has to do with the academization, academicization of the study of photography. It's being incorporated into uh, art history curricula in a way it had never been before. It has to do with the whole public discourse about photography becoming highly formalized and very theoretical in the postmodernist era. And that era and the, the, the success, the impact that it had, has displaced a number of traditional genres, but for street photography most especially. Street photography today, in, in the 60s, 70s, up through the 80s until the 90s, it lived both in its contemporary life and in its historical life in museum exhibitions and in galleries and so forth and so on. 
But in, uh, since the 90s, it's been harder and harder for a young street photographer to get a gallery to represent him, to be, have really a hope of making much of a living out of street photography per se. So most of it now lives online. There are vast amounts of it to be seen there. There are um, sort of organizations that have been set up uh, online, like the, uh, the group called In Public in England, uh, that are, you know, where these guys gather in the way that people gathered in Winogrand's apartment, uh, you know, decades ago, and in other public forums to show each other work and, and so forth and so on. Uh, and there's great work out there, but there's not the kind of, it's been the history of photography and the central place that street photography is occupied in it has been decentered and remains still decentered today, even though postmodernism is kind of passe now. The impact that postmodernist aesthetics and postmodernist theory and postmodernist art had on uh, the history of photography has created that decentering. Uh, in, a, in a certain way. There's a, let me sum this up. Since before Stiglitz, photographers had been trying to get their work accepted as an art form. And the way they did this uh, uh, was to differentiate themselves from the sort of vulgar and debased mass medium that photography became even before it could be reproduced in, in newspapers and things like that, it was often the basis. The photographs were the basis for drawings that were put in newspapers. So the, the aesthetics of photography were beginning to infiltrate photography as a mass medium, uh, even before photographs could be reproduced. And then by Reese's time, you could begin to crudely reproduce them. And distancing themselves from the tabloid press, from advertising, from all those kinds of uses of photography was the main strategy of art photographers from Stieglitz and even before Stieglitz uh, on. And then a group of people, artists, young artists, came along who had not necessarily been trained as photographers or had been inherently interested in photography as their medium, came along and following the crucial lead, uh, and really the crucial figure here, of Andy Warhol, they embraced photography because it's a vulgar and debased mass medium, rather than trying to separate themselves from it, and immediately got into all the hot contemporary galleries and started getting the prices that painting and printmaking were getting. And that, and photography became, in, in many ways, the essential subject of discussion in the art world, beginning in the 80s and gaining momentum through the 90s and up to the present day. But it's, but it's a discussion of photography which has displaced traditional street photography and displaced traditional street photographers, with some exceptions. I'm not saying yeah. that you know, everybody's forgotten street photography in its original form. Not at all. But nevertheless, in the contemporary art scene, still it remains something that's been part of the history of photography that's been displaced by postmodernism. Have uh, books over the last 15, 20 years played an increasing role in the distribution of that of street photography? Books? Yeah. Yes, certainly they have. Um, the um, um, current possibilities of on-demand book printing have made books, the creation of books possible in a way. Books that are actually being created by artists and by independent curators without a big press to do that have made an important contribution. 
even though the distribution be, might be quite limited at first for those books, the fact that they historically exist and will continue their hard copies and, and online copies of a lot of that kind of material, I mean that a lot of that history is now preserved and may be seen, seen, be seen to be more um, important as time goes on. And outside of that, photographers, as I say, as a community, have been living online and exchanging images online. Uh, in a way that had not been possible in creating dialogues and, and, and real discussion groups uh, that you know, are international and spontaneous, as spontaneous as photography itself due to the, due to the internet. So it's not that it, you know, like all bad and photography's been ruined by this. So what are your thoughts and what, what excites you about this joint effort between Acuity Press and PDN in the production of this book, Street Photography 2015? Well, the, a part of what uh, excites me is that it can exploit as precisely the possibilities that I've just been, been uh, talking about. Because it's going to, uh, through PDN, it's going to reach a very wide range of photographers who might uh, be able to contribute work to the website. Uh, and and to the, um, I don't know whether we're talking about it as a contest or a forum or exactly how it's being pitched now, but it's, but it's really an open call <clears throat> of a kind that's going to allow photographers to show work and to be in touch, be familiar with each other's work using uh, the internet as their forum. It formalizes something that's been happening more informally among uh, lots of photographers for quite a while uh, in a way that's really good, that's in a sense not essentially competitive, but is rather, uh, uh, it's an omnivore. It's going to be a kind of omnivore for, for photography of this sort. And Acuity Press, the way it's being set up, is also going to be uh, an economically feasible, as I understand uh, the, pr the parameters that are being used, it's going to be an economically feasible way to keep um, that formal relationship between a book as a hard object and a book as something online and, and uh, a larger context to get those things to cooperate and work with each other to preserve the historical yeah. record. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor. With photography, we often learn more from our mistakes than we do from our successes. The same goes for business, but mistakes there can be costly. Speaking for myself, I know I could have saved myself a lot of money and frustration had I known certain things about running and maintaining a business. Thankfully, in today's internet age, you have a great resource in the form of PhotoBiz Exposed, the podcast. Hosted by Andrew Helmich, the show provides in-depth conversations with successful photographers who share what's worked and what hasn't worked for them as they try to establish and maintain a business. It's valuable information that can really make the difference in your photographic career. There are both free and premium versions of the show, and you can take advantage of a special offer being made available just to TCF listeners. Visit their website today at photobizx.com forward slash TCF and find out for yourself how you can make a living doing what you love. Uh, tell me a little bit about, because I know you see a lot of, a, a lot of photographs and I know you've gone to Palm Springs uh, right. Photo Festival and, and <laughs> evaluated people's right. work. but I do. 
when someone sits in front of you mm -hmm. and they're about to open their portfolio mm -hmm. and say that they're saying they're specializing in street photography, mm -hmm. what are you hoping to see when you open that portfolio? Well, what I'm most hoping to see is something that will surprise me that I've never seen before. And whether my initial reaction is, oh, that doesn't really work, or my reaction is, oh, well, here's a new idea that's really important. I want to see something I haven't seen before. Uh, because the thing that I may at first have a kind of knee-jerk response to and say, mm, I don't get it, uh, is, again, it's like that thing on the contact sheet you have to go back to. It may be an idea that needs to grow on me for a while. So I'm, I want to see the biggest variety and especially a new variety of what's out there. Uh, and that's what will often focus my uh, attention the most. If I see something I haven't seen before from a street photographer, really from any photographer when I'm doing portfolio reviews, something I think that I may at first think, well, you know, that's not a very fruitful line of development. Uh, why are you doing that? Um, I'll always try and talk to the photographer in the most constructive way I can precisely because in the back of my mind is maybe I just don't get it yet. Maybe I need to have more context for this. So, again, surprises, things that, that throw me a bit off balance, uh, especially uh, I prize in seeing any new photography, but especially street photography, where people fly by unconscious instincts because of the nature of the situation in which they're working. I, I can imagine people watching or listening to this uh, are thinking, how can you surprise someone when you're photographing the ordinary? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know? yeah. So, c can you give me an example of uh, of an image that you've seen recently or, or fairly recently that has that that surprise factor? That wow, you revealed the street and the world to me in a way that I haven't after all the thousands of pictures I've looked at before. Whoa, that's hard. I can think of a photograph, a Robert Frank photograph, that. Uh, I suddenly paid attention to, one he'd made many years ago that I recently paid some attention to simply because it fit with other photographs I was trying to. It was a, it's a, I, uh, uh, at one point was, I realized that three very different photographers had made photographs of exactly the same subject in a sense, which is a photograph of uh, of a situation in which someone has fallen in the street. So there's somebody lying down who's blacked out or been hit by a car or whatever. We may not know at first. Uh, uh, one of the, the uh, uh, photographs is one that Robert Frank took back in the early 50s uh, in Paris, I think probably it was. Um, uh, and the second one is one that Gary Winogrand took in Central Park in the 80s, I think it was, uh, or maybe earlier, maybe the 70s or even 60s, uh, where someone had fallen. And obviously, he must have had a heart attack or he blacked out, and there's a, you know, a knot of people there. And the third one is a, is a, uh, a piece by the uh, uh, photographer John Baldessari, who is essentially a postmodernist photographer who's recycling photographs from the past. And the picture I'm talking about that at first I chose just because it was of the subject, that it was this picture of someone down in the street. And I looked at it and I thought, well, otherwise it's not a very distinguished Robert Frank picture because it was taken from a distance. He's, I think he's up above the scene looking down on it. And Frank is, is 
uh, like Winogrand, is more effective when he's a bit in the mix of what he's photographing, uh, when he's uh, out on the street himself rather than looking at a scene that's developing below him. And it's a, it's a scene where we see some, someone who's fallen, we see only his feet in the foreground, and then there's a crowd behind him. Um, like Frank's, a lot of Frank's pictures, it's, uh, the, the light is quite flat. It's a fairly overcast day, which is what he often uh, prefers to shoot in. Um, so in, except for the fact that we see on the edge of the picture that somebody's fallen down in the street, and that's probably why there's a little bit of a crowd there. You don't, you know, it doesn't seem a very distinguished picture. But then actually in, in a conversation with Joel about this picture later, um, I think it was he pointed out to me that there's a wonderful touch in this photograph, which is that there's like a signboard man there. He's not a he's he hasn't got a got he's not wearing this. He's holding an advertisement. He's walking around Paris with an advertisement for uh, Bunuel's movie Los Olvidados, the Lost Ones, and it's such. I mean, here's a picture of a man who's been lost in the crowd in the sense that he's mm -hmm. fainted. And there's this advertisement for this movie, which is a kind of comment on it. That kind of, of coincidence is, of course, what street photography is all about. It suddenly made me realize it's a, actually a much better, more considered picture than I had at first thought it was, just that he you know, took this, this picture in this way. So there, I mean, there's an example with a much earlier picture where something, you know, where it just seemed to me a boring picture. And then later I thought, ah, no, 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 there's something more going on there. And as I say, as I look at, um, I mean, I, I, I'll give you an example of some photography that at first I didn't quite know what to do with because of the scale of it, um, is work by Natan Devere, who's a photographer, street photographer working now in New York. And in his pictures, the, the group of pictures that I first saw, human beings were tiny and very far away. He was shooting from a great distance. There are people walking on the street. Sometimes there's a little bit of an incident going on. Uh, but I was put off by the distance that he was from the subject. I felt like, you know, I, again, I like that muscularity of Cartier-Bresson and Winogrand and Meyerowitz being kind of in the mix of the crowd that they're photographing and seeing things close and far. And I couldn't quite get near De Vere's, but what I realized was that he, what he was interested in is the way that Contemporary advertising, which puts these huge scrims of ads on the front of office buildings and other public buildings at street level. It used to be that that stuff was on a billboard up on top of the building or out in the countryside somewhere. And now that kind of advertising photography has invaded the public space of street photography, the public space of the streets mm -hmm. themselves. And Devere was purposely trying to make pictures, I, I began to realize that the background was not as indifferent as I had first thought, but that in many of these pictures, he was playing off the very carefully posed and photographed figure in the ad against the unconscious casualness of the little tiny real people in the street, playing off the, um, the uh, omnipresence of this manufactured visual environment against the the real and spontaneous visual environment of the people on the street and it i mean that's those photographs became more and more important to me as i thought of them as photographs that are a commentary on 
the condition of postmodernism, not the not postmodernism as a theory and a kind of decentering of the history of photography, but what postmodernism points out about the ubiquity of the visual image, of the manufactured visual image as the environment in which we all live and something that influences the way we think about our lives by because of its invasiveness, that that Here's a man who's making a comment about the relationship of spontaneous, um, unintentional realities to manipulative realities in the same visual form. They're both forms of photography. They're both very powerful. And the one diminishes the life of the other, (laughs) shrinks it in a certain way. And here's a, here's a street photographer who's figured out how to comment on the postmodern condition in which we live. He's not making postmodernist photographs. He's making street photographs in the traditional sense. But he's commenting on what we've learned from postmodernism rather than make, just giving in and saying, well, I can only, make, you know, I only recycle somebody else's imagery. One of the things I'm most excited about the last, I guess, 20 years is, is the advent of the Internet. Mm-hmm. And how it's opened up uh, this this practice of street photography to mm-hmm. the world. Not only people who appreciate looking at it, but practitioners of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I see some amazing photographs coming out from Asia, from mm-hmm. South America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about your experience of that and how you think it's going to influence what you're going to, going to do with the subsequent edition of Bystanders. Well, um, as I say, the, in, the, in the division of labor uh, that Joel and I have always used, when we decided to do a new edition, I decided that, as you know, the book published in 1994. Then in 2001, because the, to our amazement, the, the hard copy actually sold quite well, they put out a paperback edition. Little Brown put out a paperback edition for which we did a new afterward. And I took the changes in the history of photography. I mentioned them, and, and, but I kind of keep them in the background. I don't really talk about postmodernism. I certainly don't try and analyze its effect on the history of photography at that point. And so my idea in the new book was that I was going to do that. So the division of labor, which was uh, very much the original division of labor, was that he and I went and looked at pictures, the history of photography together when we were getting ready to do the first book. But he edited the pictures and often proposed to me. Sometimes I would say, gee, no, I want to use this picture too. But for the most part, they were pictures he chose while I was doing the kind of cultural, intellectual background research on the photographers and, you know, getting ready to try and write a credible narrative of this particular genre. Uh, So I'm working in the library and he's working with other photographers and and with the copy prints we have and and the you know the knowledge we've picked up from what we've looked at together as well as a lot of stuff himself for the new edition um, that that we decided we were going to do and and that Fiden offered us the ability to do about three or four years ago or a little more actually than that now he has gone online and looked at thousands and thousands of pictures at all of these things. We, we acknowledged the existence of In Public in 2001. It already existed as this kind of online forum for photographers. Uh, but now there's scadsum. Every street photographer who's serious about it, even if, he, even if he considers it just an avocation or even a hobby, is out there with a, with a website. So he went and looked at thousands of things and then... Um, I looked at his take of that stuff. There were times when I 
you know, there were certain pictures that I wanted in the book uh, that he was usually uh, glad to accommodate me on, but that weren't in his cut. I wasn't just responding to that. For instance, to give you an example, Ewan Bon, who is a, an architectural photographer, basically, and his photographs of contemporary architecture are terrific and often include figures. And often the figures, as in Natan De Vere's, are very diminished. They're tiny. They're, you know, it's sometimes uh, architectural photographers like to have a person in the picture just for scale, to give people a sense of scale. But he's doing more than that. And I've often had this feeling about photography in general and street photography in particular, that it is a medium so powerful that sometimes it's approached most fruitfully by being approached obliquely. Somebody who had a different purpose than being a street photographer sometimes has a bit of a breakthrough or offers a new idea about how street photographs might work. And again, it's, that happens because, as I say, it's so powerful, if you just take it head on, it's sometimes overwhelming, and the photographer's sort of numbed by it rather than stimulated. You know what I mean, what I'm talking about? So I like the fact that Ewan Bond was making pictures of the buildings, not the people. The people were included as part of the composition in a way that was stimulating precisely because it wasn't his primary purpose to do life in the, on the street, the street that architecture increasingly is because more and more of it, the whole thing is glass. Yeah. You know, more and more buildings are being built in a way that everybody is as transparent when they're inside as they were when they were outside. That's, you know, that's one of the, these, this modern scrim advertising that goes over the thing is a way to create some more privacy for offices that can see out, but you can't see yeah. in. That's why they, you know, that becomes a, a viable commercial space that you can rent to use ad, as ads because it works both ways. Anyway. Okay. So anyway, they, again, the point is that we have this way of going back and forth in which he does the primary work in one regard, the visual regard, and I do the primary work in the intellectual regard, and then we mesh it. And the ultimate meshing of it, I mean, there are certain things, issues that always remain unresolved between us. And that dialectic, it, that was always the fact that we came from very different places when we started with this mutual interest. We like to leave some of it unresolved, and that's why, like the, um, the original book, this book will end with a conversation in which we talk about things and have differences of opinion and, and uh, are excited about it all. Oh. Let's talk a little about privacy. Uh, mm -hmm. Privacy is a big issue mm -hmm. now. But especially in the realm of street photography, where photographers are uh, are making photographs with people without their awareness, without mm -hmm. their obvious permission, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk about that with respect to uh, the world today and how street photography plays a role with that consideration? Uh, sure. Um, in fact, the, the this is of course a, a legal issue, uh, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, I recently had an interesting experience of being commissioned by the ACLU to write an essay on the history of street photography so that they could defend some street photographers who were being hassled by the police here in Los Angeles. But basically in law, the thing has been, this issue has been settled recently in a precedent-setting way in New York State, where Philip Lorca de Corsia 
was sued by an Hasidic Jew that he had photographed. And again, he, he, he is very much part of the postmodernist aspect of street photography and how street photography has, has a postmodernist uh, presence that's very, rather strange because he, takes photo, he was taking photographs of people um, where he couldn't even see the subject when he photographed them. He was across the street and he was triggering an automated camera uh, from a remote access uh, uh, device. Um, and the photographs tended to isolate the subject rather than embedding them in the crowd. It was isolating them from the crowd because a strobe fired and so forth. And this uh, Hasidic Jew who, who, against whose religion it is to be photographed sued him because he then published the photograph and, and made prints for sale in a gallery and so forth. And the case went to the Supreme Court of the state of New York um, with a decision written, as I recall, by the woman who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the state of New York and who said <clears throat> that even in this circumstance, anyone who is out in public is fair game for journalism in any form. And that the, you, if you're out in public, someone else can take your picture and publish it and it's fair dues. If Again, obviously, if you put something in an ad and use that person's image to sell your product or somebody else, that's a whole different thing. But taking the picture and showing it in a museum or publishing it in an art book uh, or putting it online is absolutely legitimate. And so that's a precedent in law that's, that's uh, um, I think, just you know, less than 15 years old now. Uh, and so is an important one. And the, this situation that I mentioned here in Los Angeles that the ACLU asked me to help them with was an interesting one because what the police were doing was hassling street photographers, occasionally even confiscating uh, their files from their cameras uh, and other ways trying to intimidate them, but they never arrested them. And they didn't arrest them because they knew that if they did, they'd get murdered in court for doing it. So it was, you know, again, it was a, you know, a kind of a, a, a the, the police making political and cultural policy rather than actually something that was, whose legality was questionable. It's not questionable. You can photograph anything you want if you're in a public street and, the, and the, what you're photographing is in the street with you. Let's whether it's it a building, way. whether it's a person, whatever it is. Let's hope it stays that way. Yeah, right. Well, my final question that I ask all my guests is that I ask them to suggest or recommend a photographer for the people who are or my listeners, typically, but people who are watching this video. Uh, I'd like you to suggest one photographer for them to discover and explore on their own. So it could be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. But who would that one photographer be and why? Yeah, let me single out again Natan Devere because I've just mentioned him. Um, because I think that his, um, he is writing his own sort of essay on postmodernism in his street photography. And this is something really new. The ability of the street photography to come out from under the, um, the kind of burden that the postmodernist point of view has put on them, the way that it has in some ways marginalized them, he's found a way to sneak back in to mainstream photography with an awareness of postmodernism that makes it part of the photograph, not something that's pushed the photograph off of center stage. So I think he's, I, if there's one photographer I would say, 
look at this guy's work and don't at first be put off as I was by how small the people were. Think about why they are, because I think he's really making an original, very contemporary comment about photography and how it's emerging from the postmodernist era. That's great. Well, again, I want to thank you for, for everything. Uh, it's a real honor for me to oh, have a chance please. to sit down and talk no, no, with no, you no. and talk shop. <laughs> okay. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50, or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.